Amen. Thank you all for leading us in worship this morning. So um, blessed by you all and your diligence and preparing each Sunday to uh, magnify Christ and lead us in magnifying Christ together. So thank you all. Let's, um, let's go to the Lord and let's pray together. Father, we come, we come before you recognizing that you are the wise, even the infinitely wise God. We know that you always do what is right, and you always do what is right without fail. We see that you are great, you are perfect, and we look to you as the one in whom we can trust with all of who we are. And so may we indeed lean on you for all things. Lean on you now, lean on you tomorrow, lean on you every day into all eternity because we know we can trust you. You are God, and we come this morning recognizing that, glorying in it. We praise you that you are incomparably great. Our minds cannot even fathom how glorious you are, even as we consider your word and think upon it, and we look at all of your ways and your character. And then we realize that you are infinite, and all the things that we know about you are infinitely greater than we can imagine. And so we, we come just humbled, Lord, in realization of just how great you are. And so we pray. As we come this morning, we come and give our lives to you, the infinitely wise, infinitely great and glorious God. And so help us right now that that would be our heart. We would give our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, all we are to you, all our days. We pray, Father, that you would lead us, lead us as a church through these days, as we certainly need wisdom. Lead us as a nation through these days, as we definitely need wisdom. And we pray even that our nation, even now, would see its depth of need to repent. You would humble. You would lead our nation to Christ. We pray that you would be with the many missionaries who are going out for the sake of the gospel, that, Lord, you would use them. You would grant them wisdom in our days as well in the midst of trying to do ministry and share the gospel in days that are different. May you be with them, Lord. And we pray now as we turn to your word, may you help us. May you be with us. Help us to come and be readied. May you show us Christ this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be continuing 
here in the chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. Now, as we gather this morning, certainly if you've been paying any attention to the news, I'm sure perhaps the events of this past week loom large in your minds, in your hearts. And so it may be that you're coming this morning distracted by all of that. You know, continually thinking about what does this mean or what's next or whatever it may be you may be thinking. Or perhaps, you know, it's not this week that may be distracting you. you know, maybe it's something else. You know, yet as we gather today, I want to encourage us to remember something. That we gather as a people who are part of a kingdom that extends beyond geography, beyond time, and beyond our momentary afflictions, even the momentary afflictions of our present day. And so as history presses on, I want to urge us and encourage us that we would press on and say, yes, it presses on, but we know where it is pressing on to. So yes, it's pressing on, but we confess that God reigns and Christ is Lord and this is still God's world. And so let's remember that this morning and our regular gathering together even reminds us of that this morning that we are a part of a kingdom and as we are gathering together to worship God, the living God, and to worship Christ, our eyes are to be directed to their proper place. And I just praise God that we can gather in this way, Sunday after Sunday, continually reorienting our eyes and redirecting our eyes to those things that are of utmost importance no matter what's going on in our world. And in that we see the importance of the regular gathering of the body of Christ. Amen. How important it is we do not forsake it. So even as each day we tick the tick of the clock, we draw nearer to the day when God's kingdom will fully come Right now, let's redirect our eyes to Christ. Let's direct our eyes back to the main things, to God, to Christ, and to the gospel. And so let's make no mistake about it that those are indeed the main things. God, Christ, and the gospel. Amen. So it is then that our passage this morning... It does that. <laughs> it points us and directs our eyes to whom our eyes are to go, not in the midst of some sort of kind of fantasy world that the Bible is just kind of a, a story written by men. It's not doing that, nor some fictional abstract kingdom out there, but not real, but is directing our eyes to go to him who is true hope and true life.
to the true story of God's word and God's dealings with men, with you and I right now. So let us let God's word do that this morning to let our eyes be directed upward, which is exactly what our passage this morning will do. It will direct our eyes Christward as we look here in chapter 11 of John 17 through 44. So may God help us as we turn to his word, direct your eyes where they should be. May he, behold, may he help us to see and behold wondrous things from his word. Amen. So John chapter 7, or 11, verses 17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary reigned, remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep, there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. 
And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Amen. Amen. Now here, as we continue on in these verses, into chapter 11, verses 17 onward, we see that now Jesus is in Bethany, just two miles east of Jerusalem. And so we saw, if you were here last week, we saw from our pre- the previous verses there in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, that upon hearing the news that Lazarus was deathly ill, what did Jesus do? Well, he, he didn't go. <laughs> he, he didn't up and leave everything and, and leave the Jude- Judean countryside, but he instead did contrary to perhaps what we would have expected, and he stayed two more days. So at this point, Lazarus, as as Jesus is coming here into Bethany, he has been in the tomb for four days. So we are being told, and it's kind of uh, emboldened here, if you could put it that way, that without a doubt, Lazarus is dead. There's no question about it. He is not alive. No heart's beating. No more blood is moving. He's dead. His lungs aren't breathing. No more life is in him. And so he, in dying as he did, he was laid in a tomb. And what they did in laying him there, they wrapped him in a linen sheet with his feet bound together and his arms tied to his body with these linen strips. And, and then separately they put or bound uh, a cloth around his face and they used some aromatic spices that they would use to help reduce the old odor as well that comes with the decomposition process as well. And so the scene here, as we go into this, is not a happy scene. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I mean, I guess you could come to this passage and just preach it in kind of a chipper way. But if we really kind of take on the demeanor and the tone of this passage, it is sad. You know, it, it's not, not everyone's around smiling, you know, and, and joking around. It, it, it's a very sad scene here. One of great sadness. And Lazarus is dead. And in everyone's minds... You know, really, there's nothing more that can be done about it. He's done. Anything that may have been able to be, have been done 
is over. You know, he's, he's in the grave. And so that's essentially the sense that we're seeing here from everyone present in this passage. So any hope for healing was lost when he died. And so with that then, as was the custom, you know, people would come and mourn with those who had, this, had lost someone in their family. And so the Jews, they come consoling Martha and Mary, very likely from Jerusalem. I mean, it's just right over there, you know, two miles away. And so they would do that. And, and so this indicates for us that along with in chapter 12, as we'll soon get to, as Mary uses this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, that this family, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they were a rather well-to-do family. Normally, you wouldn't have all these many people coming. You might have one or two or something like that come, but you have all kinds of Jews coming to help console them. And so we see that this was a rather prominent Family, and even in that way, we see again that this is not the Luke 16 Lazarus. And so it is in the midst of this scene, in the midst of this family, in the midst of all these things, and these people, we see this scene, and we have this scene full of sadness, full of mourning, and full of hopes unrealized. And then, in the midst of that, Jesus arrives. And Martha, you know, she, we see something here of just how highly she esteems him. You wouldn't normally do this. So if, if you had the teacher coming, you know, the rabbi coming to, uh, to meet your family and, and loss, he would come to you. <laughs> he would come to your house. But she leaves the house and goes and meets him. That just shows us how highly in her own mind and thinking and heart she esteems Christ. And so she goes and leaves the mourning family, leaving Mary there, which would have been right, mourning with other mourners, to go and meet Jesus. And so then we have this conversation, and here within this conversation we see this grand truth that Jesus is our hope in life and death. Now, first glance, their, their conversation here might seem a bit negative, and I, it does. <laughs> you know, there is definitely that aspect to it, you know, negative in the way of like, you know, Martha, she's not happy, you know, not happy that Jesus didn't, wasn't there. Now, I think that is the case. There is a taste of negativity here, like, you know, this, this isn't, uh, they're not entirely happy that he wasn't there, but I don't think the tone here was, you know, uh, the tone of like, you know, how dare you not be here for Lazarus? I, I don't think that, that's not the kind of tone that Ma Martha has, nor Mary, in the way that they're kind of coming at Jesus here. It's not that kind of, that kind of negative tone here. Instead, I think what we have here, and I'll show you this and we'll see it, is a tone instead of faith and trust, a tone of faith and trust. So Mary is disappointed. You know, we see that with her initial words. There's no doubt about it. Yet, 
she's disappointed but not distrusting. She's kind of kind of leaning in to Christ. So just, just listen to her words here then from verses 22, 24, and 27. So verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So you see it? This disappointment. Why weren't you here? But still leaning in. If you were here, you could have done it. You know, but even now I know that God listens to you. And I don't think she quite knows what lies ahead. Like she thinks like Lazarus is going to be risen. She doesn't have that in mind. And we know that, especially when we see in verse 39 that she's like, Lord, uh, there's going to be an odor there in the tomb. Are you sure you want us to move the stone? You know, so she isn't thinking like you're going to raise him from the dead. So don't think that, but she's still just leaning in to Christ. And then verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So still leaning in. And then verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So you see it? She's, she's certainly disappointed, but she is trusting Christ. There's a, a definite faith and trust in the Lord here. A demeanor of faith. And so the tone isn't, how dare you? But it's more like, even though I am sad and disappointed, even now, in the midst of this, in the midst of loss, I believe. I think that's getting at kind of the tone and the feelings that are going on here in this passage. And that is a tone that we can learn from. You may be grieving, or you may have even grieved the loss of someone. Or it may be that you're rightly grieving the deep lostness and depravity of our nation right now. You know, when I, when I read and when I saw you know, the pictures and the videos of the Capitol being invaded this week, you know, that was just deeply disturbing. I mean, it's shocking, and I won't lie, I, I was sad, and I, I was grieving for our nation. Grieved. I was grieved at its deep need for a greater message. Indeed, the greatest message of all, the message that brings not just some temporary kind of thing in this world, but true hope and true life in the midst of such turmoil and confusion and chaos. A message that is greater than any, uh, any message that the politicians may give us or anyone else outside of God in Christ. And so what is to be our demeanor then? Whether it loss or what we've seen this week. Well, faith and trust. It's not that Martha knew all that was coming. Right? We just saw that. You know, she doesn't know what Jesus is getting ready to do. Well, we do. We take it for granted. But we do. But she doesn't. We really don't know what's to come right now either, do we? We don't know what's around the corner. 
We don't know what this next year or this year right now is going to hold. But we know we can trust who? That's right. We know we can trust him. Just like she is. I don't know a lot of things, (laughs) but I know I can trust you, Christ. We can trust Christ and we can know right now we have that greater message. We have that greater hope. And that should certainly spur on our hearts in faith and trust in Christ. Right now. And so, come then, hear Jesus' powerful words where we see first that he is what? He is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. Now, Martha doesn't really understand, you know, what Jesus is fully saying here, but she believes him. So verse 23, Jesus tells them, tells her, your brother will rise again. And so while she, she wonders at this, you know, she's trying to understand, you know, she thinks of a future resurrection. Yeah, okay, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen sometime in the future. You know, you're right. I believe that. So she, she sees that, but then Jesus, he plainly tells her, verse 25, I am the resurrection. So he isn't, he's kind of meaning two things here. He isn't only referring to what he will do here in a moment in the verses to come, but he's talking about what he's getting ready to do and what he will be doing later also. He is the resurrection. The reason why when you die, you will one day bodily rise again to eternal life, uniting your body and soul once again as is right Because when we die, it is a severing that was not meant to be. We need our bodies. That's why it gets risen with us, or risen on the final day, coming back together again, essential to who we are. So that day will come, and our bodies and souls will be united once again. And the reason why that happens is because of Jesus. You will be raised to life eternal because He is the resurrection. As He was raised, so will you be. But that isn't all that He says here, is it? He also says that He is the life. He is the life. And it's not talking here just simply that He's like a dispenser of life. But he is life. Life is in him. I'm not sure what you you think of the the study of theology, but I want to encourage you, don't disparage the study of God. (laughs) Because that's what it is. Theology, the study of theos, God. Don't disparage it. And don't miss the deep, deep theology here. The reason you have life when you believe in Jesus is because you are aligning yourself with life itself. The one who is life. 
that, we, that when we die, we will be with him and we will be uh, certain that we will be raised on the last day because he was risen. We will have eternal life while those who don't know Christ will rise too, but to eternal death. And so, with Christ, dead souls come alive and they live because of Him. They live by faith in Him and dead bodies will one day rise because of Him. Amen. So if you know Christ, you have life and you have true life forever because of Him. And so he says in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This isn't, this isn't saying that you won't die in this world. you know. But it's the solid, immovable promise that as sure as Jesus is the resurrection and the life, Death is no death for you or for anyone else who knows Christ, past or present. So like Jesus asked Martha then, he is asking you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And what you believe, my oh my matters. Don't let anyone tell you the doctrine of theology or doctrine or theology or the truths of the Christian faith don't matter. You need to understand theology, what it is, is it's simply the gathering together of what Scripture says and lifting up the truths of what Scripture says and saying, I believe this. Because of Scripture, it says this about God, about Christ, about us, about salvation, about redemption, about resurrection, about final judgment, and everything else. So don't disparage theology, but see how deeply it matters, especially in times like ours. What we believe determines what we do, and what we do reveals what we believe. So if you believe that your hope is bound to something or someone in this world, then what will your life look like? You'll live that way. You'll live as someone whose hope is attached here. And so we see the depth of the importance of what we believe. And so the question is, does what you say you believe align with Scripture? And if so, does your life align with what you say you believe? So when the famous missionary John G. Patton, he was set on going on his mission to the New Hebrides Islands, and they came and they told him, do you know what happened to the last people who went? You know what they did to those, those people? They killed them, and then they ate them. And that's what you're going to do. That's where you're going. Like, 
what are you thinking? You know, are you sure you want to go there? Well, his answer to them, it tells us his theology. He said, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And he went. There was his faith, his belief, and then he lived it out. <laughs> you see why faith so matters so much? It leads you into what you're going to do. If you believe that you can, you can trust Christ in all things, then what are you going to do? You're going to go and risk everything for him. And that's what he did. And many, many people came to faith in Christ through his witness. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, even the whole island came to faith in Christ. So it is that we also say we believe he is the resurrection and the life. And that really means something. We're not joking around. We're not just kind of up here in the abstract land of stuff. We believe that what we believe matters and that goes directly into our life. And so it is then that though our days and times may vary, Jesus is still our hope of the ages. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So where is your hope? Where is your trust? In the midst of the events of this week, where is your hope? Where is your trust? We're being told, and even with an exclamation point, hope in Christ this morning. Amen. So yes, Pray for America. I'm doing that. And I hope you are too. You know, pray for our leaders. I'm doing that too. So pray and pray some more. And in all that, and at the same time, set your hope fully, supremely, and ultimately upon Christ. Because our hope is not here. I am praying for America but my final and full and complete hope is in Christ and in his kingdom, regardless of what happens to America. Amen. Even though I love America. <laughs> and we can. But my hope is not here. And neither should your hope be here either. Christ is our hope. Amen. And so as we continue to look on here then in, in these verses we continue to see that, that sadness and the depth of the sadness of this scene so after, after hearing Jesus you know, was calling for her Mary you know she, she goes to him and again you know we see that we see that disappointment there and so it's a this whole these verses here in verses 28 to 37 
is a tear-filled, a tear-filled scene. And, and it is in the midst of that, in the midst of, of the mourning, and in the midst of this very sad scene that we see Jesus' response. And we see these two things. We see both Jesus' love and his indignation. We see both his love and his indignation. Now, you may have no problem with that first one. <laughs> you know, that's, I think you can see it pretty quickly here, and no problem for us to see it in our passage, but the other, we'll need to address that a bit here in a second. Let's just take these two in turn. So first, we see here Jesus' sovereign love. So Jesus, he comes in the midst of Mary and all of these people at the tomb. And, and like I said, this is a very tear-filled scene. So they are weeping there. They are mourning and likely even wailing. We don't do that a lot here in our day, but in that day they did. They would well in their mourning of loss. And they would well with you in your loss. So there, all these sounds are going on around him. And so different from our day, it was common even to have professional mourners to come and join you in mourning. You could you'd pay them, they would come, and then they, they would help mourn with all the family, weeping and crying out. And so in all this, in that scene, how does Jesus respond? Well, he weeps. He weeps. It's just two words, but they carry such incredible love behind them. Verse 35 is two words, Jesus wept. Amen. Jesus wept. And we, we see there his great love for everyone, and we're meant to. I mean, we've already been told that, right? In verse, what, verse 3 of chapter 11? Your Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Mar Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And even the, the, the people there, they see, you know, the Jews said, see how he loved him. And seeing him weeping, they, they get it. You know, he, he loves them deeply. So his love for them is apparent such that they say these things, and so he, he is really weeping, and he is doing that, and he is, he is sovereignly weeping. He, he knows the future. He loves them, and he weeps. Just as Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So we see here plainly that we have surely a sympathetic Savior with all of our losses and our brokenness and struggles of life. We see His sovereign Love, yet we also see the second as well. His sovereign indignation. His sovereign indignation. Now, like I said, this one may be a bit more surprising. So how do we see that here? 
Well, verse 33, it says that Jesus was greatly troubled and deeply moved in his spirit. So the, the literal words there, they mean that he was not just moved by love, but he was moved by anger, which is odd. That's not normally the way we think of these verses. But that's what's implied. It's the same word that deeply moved in the spirit. It's the same word that you would use to refer to an angry, snorting horse. So that's the kind of of anger that he's having here. And you don't have to just take my word for it. If you have footnotes or if you have the ESV version like me, maybe your Bible has footnotes and it's not ESV, but the ESV has footnotes and it says it right there in the bottom. Indignation is what this word is. So what, what is Jesus angry about? Well, in view of this whole scene, Jesus sees the death, he sees the mourning, and he sees the devastation of it all, and he becomes angry. What devastation? Well, the devastation of sin, the devastation of the curse, the devastation of rebellion and unbelief. And so then it is that Jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and weeps. He weeps over the curse of death and all that brought it about. And he does this as fully as only God can do. He isn't weeping because everything is out of control. He isn't weeping because he wonders about next, nor is he weeping kind of God that is distant and uninvolved and uninformed about what goes on in the world like he doesn't know what's getting ready to happen next. That's not why he is weeping. He is sovereignly weeping. He isn't weeping and not doing anything about it. He's there, isn't he? (laughs) But I think this is pointing back to even what he said in the beginning of chapter 11. They weren't there, but it's still in the air in our reading of it. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then directly within that, I think he's saying, your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. And so he is telling them that you will, did I not say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. as incredible as what Jesus is about to do is, you would miss the point if you miss this. If you miss Jesus. The sign, as as is all the signs in the Gospel of John, it is meant to make you stand in all, yes, but not merely of a dead man coming back to life, but of Christ. You miss everything if you're just simply, you see that, oh wow, he, he got risen from the dead, Lazarus did, that's amazing, and you miss Jesus entirely, you missed everything that this chapter was emphasizing. And so Jesus, he tells them to remove the stone. Odors or not. And so they do. 
And Jesus, he prays, and we see that the Father hears him. The Father hears him. Once everyone witnessing what's getting ready to happen, everyone there, and you also 2,000 years later to know that his mission is a father-wrought mission. This sign is not a fireworks show. <laughs> He's not just trying to make you go, wow, that's wow, yes. He has purpose in this. It has eternal purpose behind it. In verse 42, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you. He's talking to the Father. You sent me. And he's saying now the same to you here. And so he prays, and after he prays to the Father, what does he do? The Word speaks. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same Genesis 1, 1, or the Genesis who, uh, God who created everything by speaking all things into existence, he now comes and he speaks. And what happens? So as the word spoke all things into existence, now here Jesus speaks again, and dead Lazarus hears his voice, and he obeys. It has been said that, you know, if Jesus had not specified, you know, Lazarus, then everyone would rise from the dead. And so with all the people watching on, we would be right to ask, who can do such wondrous thing? Who can raise the dead like he does here? Who can save sinners? Who is our hope in life and in death? Who is our hope, whether our nation continues or our nation crumbles? Jesus. Amen. Jesus is. So as we rock through this day and any day to come, Christ is our hope. Our final, complete in certain hope. We don't hope in things that are uncertain. We hope in things that are certain. So set your hope on him who is the resurrection and the life. May it be that we take this to heart today. Whatever comes, Take your heart and set it fully upon Christ. Church, those tuning in, set your heart fully upon Christ this morning. So let each of us do that right now. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come. We praise you that we can come. We praise you that through Christ we come to the Father. 
the glorious things Christ has done. And so we come, Father, and we pray that with all of the things going on around us or in us, that you'd help us, Lord. Help us, whether it be that we're facing something or just facing this, this nation and the things going on in our nation, whatever, may our hope, our hope and our hearts be fully set upon Christ this morning. May you help us, Father, not just to be those who say they believe something, but not really. But help us to be those who believe it and let that belief just seep into our lives, into our thinking, into our feelings, into our families, into our homes, into our workplaces, into the mission field, into the grocery store and the restaurants, and in all we do, help us, Lord. We pray, Father, this morning, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, they wouldn't miss this sign, they wouldn't miss Christ this morning, but they would see their need for Christ right now, the one who came to be a curse for them. And so, Father, help them now to see their need for Christ, to put their faith in Christ, to forsake all and follow Christ. Help them to believe, turning away from sin and self and turning to Christ as their life and treasure and all. And so help us, Father, as we respond in song this morning. May you be with us and help us respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.